yours. I'm Derek Morrison, and welcome to a new episode of Bring Your Own. Southern France is home to some of the world's most classic and iconic wines across so many styles. We were excited to explore Provence, Chateauneuf-du-Pape, and some of the nearby regions with some fantastic winemakers whose own wines have taken great inspiration from some of these producers. Joining us today are winemakers Alex Krauss and John Locke from Birakino Wines in California, along with author and winemaker Richard Bray. Special thanks to the great team at Luca Restaurant in Farringdon who hosted us. One of London's finest Italian restaurants, we were fortunate to occupy one of their beautiful private dining rooms for our session. Find them online at luca.restaurant or on Instagram at luca.restaurant. If you enjoy the episode, please take a moment to give a review online. Follow us on social media at BYO Podcast and share this episode with your friends. The full video version is available on YouTube and subscribe to the podcast to make sure you catch all future episodes. So gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us today to uh, celebrate some, uh, some great wines from South of France. Uh, let's just go around and introduce ourselves quickly. We'll start with uh, you, Richard. Tell us a bit about uh, who you are, what you do. My name is Richard Bray. Uh, I'm an author and winemaker and wine merchant based in London and the Roussillon. Uh, I've written a book on winemaking called Salt and Wool Vines. And I currently uh, work harvest at Cume Mass and Mass Christine in Collier Banyuls and Cote de Roussillon. I also sell wine at Hedonism Wines in Mayfair. The Birakino gentleman, why don't you uh, uh, take it over from there and tell us a bit about uh, what you're up to in California and um, why you're here with us today. What you got? Uh, well, my name is John Locke. I have one job. That's why I feel like such a slacker. I, uh, Alex and I uh, co-founded uh, Birakino in Santa Cruz, California in 2008. Uh, we work together at another uh, winery in Santa Cruz, um, known around these parts a little bit, Bonnie Dune Vineyard. Um, but we uh, started out just making a, a few wines, uh, things less commonly encountered in California. Uh, kind of lost self-control, you know, a few years later and make a lot of different things now. Um, and sell them kind of around, around the world, Expo export about half the wine, so end up in London. Generally once or twice a year. So. Yeah, and I'm Alex Krauss, the other half of Birakino. And yeah, we started our winery in 2008, as John mentioned, uh, with the most unlikely of business plans, making a Malvasia Bianca and selling it all in your home country, in Quebec, to the government alcohol monopoly. Uh, and thankfully, it was actually thanks to Fields Morrison Verdon and Martine Bounet's gentle suggestion that we perhaps diversify our product range and make something red and maybe rosé. Uh, actually, uh, two of the wines that we have on the table with us today that uh, we have, uh, yeah, we're still a two-man operation, management, labor, um, winemaking, trucking, lots of trucking. Jobs. You have two jobs, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Several hats under one big yeah. hat. Yeah. Yeah, but we, uh, we own nothing, uh, have several hundred old barrels make wine in an industrial estate in uh, a not fashionable agricultural district, um, but are lucky to work with a lot of uh, second, third generation Italian and French families that have wonderful 100, 120, 130 year old vineyards. And, Try to do them justice. I love your guys' wines. We've um, we've worked with them for a while, and um, you know what we have on the table today is a few. But we, I mean, you make some Pinot Noir, you make some uh, some beautiful Pinot Noir, some Chenin Blanc, as the Malvasia, the Petnat from Malvasia. You've got a pretty broad spectrum of wines. We're 
But I remember when we met, um, one of the things that at first kind of connected with me about um, from, from, from your story was your, your love for the wines of Andal and, and the south of France. And, um, and so that was kind of the inspiration when you guys were in Mutant. I said, well, why don't we get, get these guys around the table and let's drink some, some fun wines from the south of France. And, and, um, um, and obviously that connects quite well to a few of the wines from your portfolio. So beyond obviously these three bottles, you have some great, you know, as I said, Pinot Noir is the ones that we work with a lot and, and some of the other grapes I've mentioned. But uh, why don't you tell us a bit about these three, we'll taste through quickly and then see what else you've brought to share with us. Yeah, we made Malvasia Bianca just to, only that wine, 2008 and nine, And then uh, 2010, uh, started making Rosé. We also kind of thought about that's true. It was suggested to us that people were actually drinking red wine. You know, what, what do you think? <laughs> who'd, have who'd, who'd have thought? And we independently came not only to the same variety, but the very same vineyard, actually, we wanted to work from. So that was the Grenache. Um, the rosé has been very similar uh, since we started making it. And it really is, uh, I think, uh, we try to avoid the mistake of really copying what exactly what other people do. Uh, but I was kind of alarmed to um, realize that 2017 was my 27th harvest or vintage, I think. And so we have made a lot of different wines in a lot of different places and uh, tried a lot of different techniques, both on our own and other people's dime. So we try to borrow sort of ideas from other places, adapt it to the different vineyards, different climates that we have, and see so we can't make something that is uh, you know, not the same as our inspiration, but at least draws from the experience of other people. And this is a perfect example. This has uh, always been Grenache, uh, Old Vine Morved, Old Vine Sanso, and a little bit of uh, Roll. Uh, unfortunately, in California, it's, or in the United States, it has to be Vermentino, because the first time it was put on a label, uh, it was a Vermentino, but we call it roll on the back, at least on the, the French version. So. You got a big eyebrow raise from Richard over there because he was, it, you really tugged some heartstrings there because I know he's got his rock and roll uh, is the name of his uh, Vermentino or roll TV that they make in the restaurant. So um, immediate props from that you didn't see over your shoulder. But. Well, when, when the, uh, in this vintage particularly, it has a kind of this uh, whetstone kind of gunflint character and, and we did say about this, it is much more rock than roll this year, so. <laughs> it is a very classic blend. It is something of a unusual method. Uh, we are very fortunate to be one of the, I don't know, eight or nine people that get grapes from the Bechtold Vineyard, a very old vineyard out in Lodi, which uh, Alex will tell you more about. Uh, those grapes come in pretty early. It's really, it's a hot area as grapes go. It's maybe the, uh, the least uh, hot part of the Central Valley, but it's a very old vineyard, uh, very adapted to the heat. We pick those grapes. Um, it's the only uh, lot of grapes we perform a Seigneur on. Uh, but we pick them with the intent of making rosé. So we pick them when the acidity is relatively high, potential alcohol is relatively low. Uh, crush them, drain off some juice, uh, somewhat perversely, we make a red wine kind of as a byproduct of the rosé production. Uh, we uh, settle the juice, goes into a tank, starts fermenting wild. Uh, one, two, three weeks later, another lot of grapes comes ripe. Generally, the Morved, those come in. We might crush them, give them some skin contact. Sometimes they'll go right to press, depends on the vintage. Juice settles, put it into the same tank. Keep the tank rolling. And then that's what we do with each successive lot that comes in. We'll start, you know, typically late August. The wine goes dry in early December. 
So okay. we neither uh, encourage or discourage kind of malactic, but if it happens, it goes through. It's not uncommon, it might go halfway through. But when it's dry, we kind of put the brakes on. Uh, so it does not go into barrel. Um, sometimes it does not go, in, go through malactic, but it oftentimes has a lot of width. We think because you have this fermentation that's rolling a long time, you have this prolonged suspension of leaves, and it just picks up this sort of richness, kind of almost glycerol quality. And uh, it is a method that uh, so far has not been had any catastrophic failures. Uh, it's, we really have found this, we've used basically the same percentages every year. It's about two-thirds Grenache, 15-ish, uh, sometimes 12% Morvet or Sanso, a little bit of roll. And uh, it, uh, it's a little embarrassing, but the biggest piece of this is uh, Grenache from up in the uh, foothills, the Sierra foothills. Um, very high elevation, about 2,700 feet. Some grapes we probably would not make red wine from, which is fine, because we, we never have. That is uh, oftentimes the last, or the second to the last piece. Uh, we've been using it since 2011, I think, uh, 2011. Yeah, I've never tasted wine, even that we've made, from that on its own. We've never peeled any of it off. <laughs> I know how it tastes in here. <laughs> or I know that we're happy with the well, results. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of late to the party, so it's kind of like get in the tank, get in with the rest of it. We so, gotta get, I mean, I suppose, go. it's November here. <laughs> uh, you know, if I thought about it and, you know, uh, especially now that it's memorialized on film, you know, I think maybe we should put some in a stainless steel, you know, drum and see what it actually tastes like. But the grapes are so fresh. They have that wild strawberry kind of alpine quality, which alpine herbs, and kind of violet pastilles shows up in so many of our wines um, for a variety of reasons. And uh, the biggest component is the Grenache, and that's probably, that brings that alpine character to the wine. Uh, sometimes a character shows up in the wine that is you know, somewhat anomalous here or there, and oddly enough, we have no idea, well, not no idea, but we don't, can't be certain where it comes from because we've never tasted these wines on their own. They're not assembled post facto. Uh, called the sequential fermentation, so we think it's a good idea. The result's always pretty good. I mean, I, I really like this rosé. It's got a lot of texture, it's got a lot of kind of sapidity, it's got a lot of personality, and, and, and I think it you know, works really well, the price point, I mean, retailing it. Uh, it's a very successful wine. It doesn't hurt that it's beautifully packaged, but uh, um, but just as pure as far as wine goes, I think it really delivers a pretty good punch for it. And, and you really see that style um, and, and that texture. It's much more it's a serious, serious mm -hmm. wine. And you talked a bit about the, the, the Bechtel Vineyard um, for the Grenache, where some of it goes into this rosé, and then maybe that's a good segue if you want to, Alex, start telling us a bit sure. about the, yeah. the, the Grenache and then the Senzo. Uh, we were lucky to work with uh, this vineyard, and as John mentioned, in the first vintage, we used the entirety of the, of the fruit for rosé, but it did seem to be almost criminal to take what we believe to be the oldest Senzo vineyard left on the face of the earth and just use it for rosé, no matter how, how lovely it may be. But it's, uh, yeah, as John mentioned, from Lodi, not exactly uh, perhaps the most fashionable of wine regions in, in California. Um, you know, more thought of as the, the place that you drive your trucks down from Napa in the middle of the night and load up on fruit and bring in, you know, 24.99% uh, to blend into your, your wine from, uh, from fas more fashionable, more trendy Appalachians. But, uh, but nevertheless, 
It is a, 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 an amazing uh, source for some beautiful old vines. And uh, this was planted by Joseph Spenker in 1886. And uh, it's quite a trip to think about, you know. Gustav Daimler was patenting the, the automobile, and the Statue of Liberty was arriving in New York Harbor, you know, right around that same time period. That a lot has changed in the intervening years, and uh, and it's it's a rather yeah special, uh, almost kind of extraterrestrial kind of place. It's uh, Tokay fine sandy loam, obviously ungrafted, um, dry farmed as well, and. We're lucky it's quite sought after, uh, as you might imagine, although it wasn't always as fashionable uh, a, a grape variety. And went into, you know, it was known as black malvoisie for quite some time and was used for God knows what, for probably, you know, hardy burgundy and pink chablis uh, in its <laughs> whatever uh, past, but it was really, yeah, our, you know, Randall from, from Bonnie Dune who discovered the potential for it. And, um, and even at, uh, this is its 132nd vintage, uh, it's still fairly productive, you know, it yields a couple, three tons even uh, per acre. They're quite large uh, individual berries and clusters uh, and we get our fruit uh, from a later ripening section of the vineyard, which John mentioned, and yeah, I've always loved the one of the the top notes, that floral kind of pretty uh, violet lavender quality. Obviously, has great natural acidity. Um, is really the lift for the Vangri, but when uh, made as a red, and as John mentioned, it's paradoxically the only red wine we make that we saignet at all. Uh, it's from one of the warmest regions that we work with, and it's almost always the lightest in body and the most sort of delicate. Uh, just yeah, doesn't make this, a whole lot of sense. doesn't look like a semi-aged red. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it reminds us, I think, both of you know, wines that we love from, you know, from uh, Beaujolais, too, kind of mm. crew Beaujolais. It has that density of flavor and compactness and intensity, but on a, on a lighter frame. Yeah, lighter, light on its yeah. feet. I mean, it's Amazing freshness and tension, and, and it's very linear at the same time. Um, but then, it has this. There's a lot of uh, a lot of contrast in terms of the textures on the palate, but it's really quite, really chiseled, mm -hmm. fresh, lively. It's eminently drinkable. I mean, that's. It, it's so drinkable that you can just be hammering this back and not actually pay attention to how serious it is. But it's just so tense and, and nervy on the palate that it really kind of grabs your attention. Yeah, I think there's kind of a, a holdover from the, the days in California when people were obsessed with hang time. And it was around the time that you know, these large-scale wines were really being rewarded um, in the press. And uh, there was a thought that people had to let grapes hang on. Like, there's, you're not going to get maximum flavor or proper wine unless you leave the grapes on. And I think Alex is right. This is the style of wine we like to drink. I do not like drinking really fatiguing, you know, heavy wines. But I think there's a lot of vineyards in California that are just picked a lot later than they need to be, they lose their specificity. They might have some more width and weight and be kind of impressive, but the thing that might make them special disappears. It's kind of, it just fades off after a certain amount of time when you're kind of want these, want lushness and kind of candied quality in grapes and so. This is 12 and a half or something like that, is that right? It's about 12 and a half. Yeah, Grenache will occasionally get up in the high 13s and touch 14. But that's, you know, that's it. We're acutely conscious of the, you know, the, the, our good fortune that we get to work with 
such amazing old vineyards, organically farmed vineyards, dry farmed vineyards, and and so enjoy and appreciate their expressiveness and the unique qualities that they have that they would be kind of blurred and homogenized if we followed a more typical protocol and worked our worked them harder, did longer macerations. We don't do cold soaks. We don't you know, extend macerations with one small exception on a portion of the Grenache that uh, we ferment native, um, all of those things, I think. And, and we don't use new barrels that we have purchased four in 10 years, but one of them sat empty for, for a year because we didn't actually Ostracized. have a wine to put into it. <laughs> Ostracized from the rest of the barrels. Don't yeah. complain. Yeah, but it's just when you're lucky enough to have access to these amazing sources and, you know, and it is our personal preference. Of course, we make wine in our own image and certain sensitive new age guys, you know. I, I just think one of the things that is lovely about this is how much more it reveals in the glass after time. Like there's, you know, it starts incredibly soft and gentle, but the, you know, the rusticity of Sanso begins to appear. The more air it gets, it, it you know you begin to get a little bit of that more of that grip and tension in the tannins, and it's it reveals different shades of the fruit as well. There's there's sort of a, sort of a darker, almost like a a citrus highlight to the to the red fruits and whatnot that comes out uh, with a bit of time. It's, it's really lovely. Yeah, Thank great. you. Thank you. I mean, that, that's for me a, yeah, a huge compliment and we think about that a lot and ideally a more uh, gentle, delicate, minimalist winemaking protocol allows for that kind of dynamic quality in, in the finished wine, that it's not a one-hit wonder that then trails off into the abyss that hopefully with time, with air, you know, you do reveal different layers, and you taste that both on the palate and its evolution. And and you feel and you feel that even in the mouth, the kind of the different kind of chapters of the wine on the palate in terms of like what flavors it reveals. And and the finish is kind of this nice kind of like almost tobacco spice to freshness. I mean, you feel the high tone fruit, and but then you, as you kind of see that rusticity, some of these kind of darker tones kind of sneak up on you a little bit. And that's what I kind of. Uh, part of what I said, like it's so drinkable, you can just—it's so pleasant and enjoyable to drink. But then it's really like it hangs around. I mean, it's got something to say. And that's a, it has a bit of a dual nature, which is—I should segue a little bit into the the label is actually from our favorite Swedish artist from uh, just north of uh, Stockholm, Uppsala, who wrote a book uh, on uh, the history of the Nordic peoples, and this comes from a chapter, in fact, on the perils of yeah. navigation in. Uh, Above the Arctic Circle in the land of perpetual darkness or perpetual sunlight. And this has this kind of dual faceted quality as a rose and even you know as a red wine. But there's a darker side and, and a lightness to it. One other thing on that, and it, you know, if we're going to talk, make this a geeky winemaker episode, <laughs> there is a lot of people confuse or do not make the distinction between like richness, luscious, and density. And there's a point when the grapes mature and they get to the point where they, ha they are, have this level of ripeness that can still be fairly buoyant, but there's a, you get that density quality, density, and then you go a lot longer, then you could get into this richness and sweetness. And it's the density part that we like. So we say that our wines, oftentimes there's a lot of wine, but in a condensed space. We don't want a lot of wine in a, like expansive space that kind of fatigues it. We want them 
concentrated downward kind of. And I think that's a really good kind of, uh, um, it kind of reaches to what we're going to taste later and some of the wines from South of France and Chateau Neuf de Pape and, um, you know, wines that really find that equilibrium between concentration and density and intensity of flavor um, while maintaining this ethereal balanced quality. And I think, I think at times, you know, being able to achieve the, that balance and hit that, hit that mid, that perfect um, point where you where you maximize both aspects of that, maintaining that levity and intensity at the same time is so. It's such a it's such a uh, it's such a small target, such a small bullseye, it's such a fine line to straddle in hot climate regions, especially where you work, where you know where you work, and where the wines we're going to talk about for. So whenever it hits that right now, for me, it's always it's quite profound. So with that. What uh, you, I, sure. now you've got the Grenache in front of us. The Grenache, yeah. So this is from uh, a vineyard planted on its own roots in uh, 1910. Uh, it's been farmed for much of that uh, since just after World War II by the Besson family. Uh, their uh, patriarch uh, Jean moved from I think from the Savoie to California. Uh, happened to land in San Francisco, the big earthquake hit, uh, and then they headed south until his wife didn't want to keep moving any further, and they uh, set up camp in uh, right at the base of the Santa Cruz Mountains on the inland side, and then just after World War II, uh, Jean's son, George Sr., purchased this vineyard, which was already you know, 30 years old, but it's unusual in many respects. It's a fairly large vineyard. It's about 10 acres. Um, almost all of that original, um, more uh, from the original planting. Uh, it's gently north sloping, fairly sandy, granitic soil, a little bit of clay in there. And at the confluence of three mountain ranges, you have the Santa Cruz Mountains on the western edge, uh, through which there's a, a gap, the Hecker Pass Gap, where you do get some fog, some coastal influence from the incredibly deep 4,000 meter deep Monterey Bay, uh, just on the other side of the hills, uh, that keeps the nights quite fresh. Uh, and you have, uh, it's, un, uh, it's not irrigated, it's dry farms, um, and it's warm enough in that location, just about a mile from the start of the Santa Cruz Mountains to ripen quite completely, but still cool enough to preserve more delicacy and more fragrance. And uh, we, we've known and worked with this vineyard in past lives uh, for quite a few years, but uh, when Martin from Fields Morrison Verde at the time suggested uh, we really should make a red wine, uh, this was the first thing that popped into our uh, into our minds and got lucky that we now uh, get to draw on it. And you mentioned kind of talking about um, not, yeah, you know, hang time. And then kind of the, the prevailing wisdom when we started was, uh, you know, that, you know, you wanted to let things really go and develop. And I think we both have made a, a shift uh, towards trying to pick as early as possible in a way while you know, uh, this vineyard, we've gotten to know probably the most profoundly of any of the sites that we work with. We do pick it in, uh, it's in eight different blocks, and uh, we've, you know, come to know that, you know, block one by the highway is uh, typically more forward, uh, quite uh, the earliest ripening, and blocks two and three have quite a bit more uh, rocks and uh, thicker skins, higher tenon, we pick that a little bit later. Um, we are looking to kind of keep that 
that balance, that tension, that freshness, and it has a really special uh, purity of flavor and a transparency that kind of this has almost for me like a, an auditory quality that you know it really rings and uh, and we do everything possible to preserve that. Um, given that we're not doing a kind of typical saignée, we're not doing cold soaks, we're not extending macerations, uh, typically we'll pick this um, after a couple days, the native ferment kicks in, uh, and after a couple of weeks or so, um, taste it. When it tastes dry, we'll press it off and put it down to a combination of demi mui and barrel, and uh, more recently into some cement. Um, but all of those things kind of give you that delicacy, that elegance that we look for. Um, but since 2012, we go through and personally pick, and we're very slow, uh, about 10% of our Grenache looking for really loose, open clusters with good airflow, pick them into uh, FYBs, as we call them, the yellow boxes, uh, and bring to a barn on the property and uh, in the dark put fans on them and dry them for um, 10 days to two weeks uh, and, um, and then ferment that lot separately. And on that one piece, we do do an almost biblical kind of 40 days and 40 nights uh, extended maceration and blend that back in as our kind of... Uh, uh, secret sauce into the the main lot, and what I love about that is that it seems unlike when we've we've tried since we work with old vine, you know, Senso sitting right next to it, and old vine Morved. We have tried blending other things into this Grenache, but each time we've done that, it felt like it really blurs that precision, the focus. Um, but by doing this short apasimento piece of the Grenache, it seems to amplify the kind of wild, sappy quality, this sort of Christmas in northern Michigan uh, aspect to the, this vineyard without blurring that focus. And certainly it contributes some tannin and length on the palate. So Alex, one of the first things that kind of uh, uh, we connected on as, as uh, co-wine lovers was a, a mutual appreciation for wines from kind of south of France and from, from Provence and, and there. And so um, this kind of segues nicely into what I see in front of us that uh, you brought. So you want to just tell us a bit about um, what you brought and why you brought it? Sure. Uh, so I brought the Reynald de Lille's uh, Terre Brune uh, bundle, and I really owe my interest and passion and now career in wine to Provence. I uh, had the good fortune to have spent uh, some uh, months and actually years uh, as a student in the south of France, living with a, a French family who were tangentially involved in the wine business, but they exposed me to you know, late 70s vintages of Vieux Telegraph and Daube Provençal and, uh, and what great rosé could be. And so, you know, Bundle has always been a, a kind of close to my heart and I am a huge fan of uh, what he's managed to do, what his family, he and his father before him uh, in Bandol. And this is you know, certainly an inspiration for, for both of us, I would say, for, for what we do. Uh, it's, uh, it's about half Morved and roughly a quarter each of Grenache and Sanso on limestone. Yeah, it's aged in uh, some old food he does let it go through malolactic, but it to me proves that you can have a, a fantastic, fresh and structured wine uh, that's a rosé that 
is long lived as well. I, I think that the last part you touched on the, 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 the longevity of these wines is one of the things that um, is so important for people to understand, especially people who are kind of new to wine or have a very kind of um, um, non-serious perception of, of rosé wines. I mean, tasting some aged bandles just like, it's like a whole other thing. It's just funny to me that I can't think of another region in the world that has such a disparity between like the ceiling of the wines and like the mass perception of the entry level of the wines. And uh, I don't know if you notice any differences. In so I, I had a... <laughs> One of my jobs a couple of years ago was to go find a new Provencal Rosé for the wine importer that I worked for. And so I was at Vinissoud, and in one morning, with a, with a winemaking friend of mine uh, named Nyan, who's a friend of yours as well, uh, we tasted through about 150 Provencal Rosés. And it was, a, it was absolutely horrifying. Uh, because they were, you know, I, and I, I've later discussed this with other, other people, that there's, there's so much at the, at the, at the high-volume level that it, it's just an analogous stream because they're, they're trying to do it in such volumes that something that should be very, very, very simple is made incredibly complex because they're cold stabilizing, they're, they're pumping loads of enzymes, they're not using native yeasts because they, have, they basically have a Dulux color palette that they have to hit and it has to be exactly the same no matter what. And it has to, it has to somehow be bone dry with, while still having enough residual sugar that people will really like it. And so, and then, and then at the same tasting, I went to taste some of the Bandol roses and, and roses from producers who, who really do it right. And I mean, as, as these guys know, rose is, is, you know, should be just red grapes picked a little bit earlier from maybe even from sometimes younger vines pressed gently so you get a bit of color from the skins and then just treat it like wine after that. There shouldn't be any, there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be any messing about with it. Well, I'm just going to say something. You, you said, you know, doesn't, you don't have to make it complicated. And you said, yeah, it's not difficult. And we make a really, a very clear distinction between these two continuums of complexity and difficulty. And so what those guys are doing, it's really complicated, but it's actually easy. Once you know how to do it, all the, making those things, there's a lot of complicated steps, but it's really easy. And these things, and I'm not gonna claim like we're the greatest winemakers in the world at all, but making what we do is actually conceptually simple, but it's difficult. Like, getting them at the right point, figuring out if there is some phenolic character in the grapes that you don't want in the wine, or if you do want in the wine, or how to get, how much width is the right amount of width, how much, how to get the length, how to keep it nervous and have the right texture. And so, like, it's, it's really conceptually simple, just difficult to find that right point. It's made more complicated by the fact that they're trying to scale it to such an industrial level mm -hmm. that you're competing against the, what, what nature gives you. If you interpret what nature gives you, and you can read it in a sense, and your concept is sound, the execution has to be precise and technically it has some technical difficulty, mm -hmm. but you're not fighting against um, what's optimal. You're, you're, trying to, you're trying to, you know, work with what's optimal and then to execute it to the best possible level. And but what's interesting about Provence, I mean, because you see this problem um, with that mass industrialized wine in 
Um, you know, we've seen it destroy fine wine and Prosecco. We've seen it really kind of set Chianti back. We saw it send Suave back, Malbec, anywhere where we've seen where we've seen a mass consumption or mass demand for a lowest common denominator product from a, from a, a single region, how it sets back the fine wine market demand in so many of those things. I mean, it's, I, don't, I say to people all the time, there's nothing harder to sell in wine than like a 40 pound bottle of Prosecco, like from a, a single site. Like that's just, I mean, it's so difficult to sell. Not because the wine isn't of that quality, but because the, the market perception of the value of that appellation is diminished by industrial wines. And what's interesting about Provence is that Bandol and say Palette for example, because I think they have their own individual AOCs, that that really helps them segment a bit from some of the sludge in a sense. I mean, it's still very niche and you still have to find a way to do it, but I think that, that um, they're able to differentiate enough. Benoit is its own separate brand to Provence, in a sense, and I think that that's uh, interesting and, and, and important, but you know, uh, um, but the, the ceiling of these wines, and this wine definitely demonstrates it's really the seriousness of what you can achieve there. So I think it's yeah. really cool, great, great choice. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, at least in, in the US, uh, and I imagine in the UK as well, that there's, there's this bifurcation of expectation for what rosé should be, that it should be, you know, uh, yeah. I think majority of people just don't even think about it. It's, it's just something to quaff and quick and easy and simple, but that you can have something with great structure, with great longevity, with complexity, with really, in many respects, all of the structure and the body of a red wine, but just with that freshness and that, that elegance and that flexibility as well. What we've seen, I think what we've seen in the market too is that as people kind of go more and more towards drinking reds, we've seen this and the rosé and season demand goes up. That's kind of extended to this kind of year-round demand for more serious roses, and I think that's kind of helped in a sense. And we're seeing—I mean, for me, I can speak to what I sell in the shops and how I've expanded the range. I'm selling much more uh, rosé from Etna, from Corsica, from from Germany, different types of you know real wines that just happen to be rosé. And I think that like there's just a, the freshness in this style helps kind of you know it's, a, it's I'm never not in the mood for rosé personally. I mean. It's kind of a good seg, a good good opening act to whatever I'm going to have next, and uh, maybe that's a good segue to kind of get to the next bottle. Sure. Um, I brought a bottle of the 2011 um, Travaillon Blanc, which is uh, um, much much more rare than than the Reds, um, Red, and uh, yeah. So why don't we well, let's get a bit in the glass here for you guys, and um, we'll talk a bit about it and see what uh, see what we think. So Travaillon Blanc is uh, predominantly Marsan with um, some Roussan, a little bit of Chardonnay, Grenache Blanc, and, um, and um, Claret. And um, you know, I, I, was, I had reached out to the Durbach family a, a few years ago and trying to see where I, trying to, trying to get an allocation for Canada or to, I just want to have the wine on my list basically. But yeah, so I mean, so just to kind of give you an example of the scarcity of this wine, um, if you want to import, uh, when, I, when, I, when I spoke to uh, uh, um, uh, the Durbeck family, uh, for every 12 bottles of red you buy, you're allowed, they'll, they'll allow you to buy one bottle of white. So um, for every case of 12, you need to buy 120 bottles of red. So, um, and, and that's why, I mean, the, the red is kind of super, so 
I mean, for people who don't know the estate, I mean, the, the Durbach family, the, um, um, Monsieur Durbach's father um, was actually a friend of Picasso, a friend of Picasso, and he's an artist, and he settled his family uh, with an estate in, in Provence. And um, um, when his son took over the estate and started um, working with uh, planting vines, they, what's unique, they're in Provence, but they were kind of just a van de France. They were not part of the Appalachian. He was doing reds, 50% Cabernet, 50% Syrah, planted on the north-facing granitic slopes um, on the family estate. And, um, you know, I, I, I always think of Trevelyan as kind of the super Tuscan of the south of France in that sense, where it was really, um, you know, going for his own approach and, and doing something very unique, um, which nowadays you see so many people trying to do kind of um, repl replications or a similar kind of kinds of wines, but uh, um, the wines are timeless, the, the reds need tons of age before they really start to open up, and I've just, uh, the price, quality, value in terms of iconic wines of France, I just think that it's always um, absolutely stunning, and anytime I'm buying for the shops or I'm buying for restaurants or whatever I'm doing, anytime I come across some vintages of Trevelyan Blanc that has even a, a semblance of age on it, I buy it, I, I mean, it, it, kind of the price will work, whatever it is, and um, it tends to be a bit more expensive than the red, but uh, still in terms of you know wine that's almost got a decade of, uh, of age for a white, it's uh, just such a cool wine, there's so much texture, so much intensity, um, I just love this domain and I, I just think there's a lot of really cool stories with the family and the, what, they're, what they've been doing uh, at the domain, and um, um, yeah, it's always been just a, 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 a domain that I have a lot of excitement for personally and I think when we're talking about wines from this region it's really cool to kind of showcase one of these bottles because it's so different from some of the stuff that we're going to taste and that we've tasted but uh, um, equally important I think to telling the whole story of uh, Provence or the south of France. So I'm, I think it's delicious and you know there's like a lot of times you have like uh, three elements or four elements like you think are critical in wine to make it complete. And if there's three, you can get two, but like getting the, you can get any two of the three, but getting all three and having something that's, you know, rich and textured, but is still mouthwatering, that's really, that's tough. And this has that almost, you know, salty character. You almost like wonder, is there like 15% Shannon in here or something like that? They're riching it out. And it was that salty, you're, and it keeps it alive, and then it's just, but it's, again, it's like a, it's a lot of wine, not in a small space, but it's not tiring or lazy at no, all. It's yeah. really, yeah. really alive and veef and just, but rich. It's got it's that salinity or, or like almost like pork belly fat, like it's got this kind of savoriness to it, but, you know, Marsan also is kind of a difficult, it's pretty, for me, it's a difficult grape for me to like and want to drink because it's so spicy and it's got a bit, it's got a really kind of, um, um, enigmatic personality is a grape, so it's kind of, um, but this wine's just, as you say, it's definitely, I think, better than any individual part, but it's got that richness, it's mouth-filling, but it's still fresh, it's got the salinity, but it's, uh, um, and, you know, I think alcohol level, I mean, it really holds itself quite well, 13 and a half, I mean, it's... Every, everything about it suggests it should be fat, and it's not fat exactly. in any way, shape, yeah. or form, because everything is where it's supposed to be. It's just, and it's, and there's so much of, like, when I say everything, it's, there's so much going on in there. Um, I've always thought Trevion should have its own AOP, sort of yeah. like, I think it deserves it more than Griet does, because yeah. it's just totally different from everything around it. And even though lots of people sort of try to copy it, and you have people like, you know, different but the same, but like Dumas Gasek and, and Grosje Perrin and stuff like that, they're easily the cream of the crop of all of those, of the, the sort of, I mean, 
it, it feels disingenuous to say the new south of France because you know they've been around for a long time. But that sort of you know the the, the pioneers of making the south of France seem more serious to wine drinkers from around the world. Um, I I think their wines are just awesome. I think this is. You know, and you mentioned Grange de Perrin, and he went, when he was starting to kind of develop for his body, he went and he spent time with two winemakers to kind of um, get a perspective on how to grow Syrah. He went to Jean-Louis Chave, and he went to Durbach at, um, at, at Trevenant, and I think that that's kind of uh, um, pretty, pretty cool. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's funny though, it's funny, when, so when, we were, when I was finding this episode, I was so, because I was so psyched that you guys, you were into wines from this area, and we've got some really cool stuff behind this, and Richie brought some of the great table. I talked to a few people, and you know, I talked to Psalms around the industry, and everyone was kind of like, yeah, I mean, cool, but nobody was really as hyped as I was, because, I mean, I guess it's just not... Warm climate's not popular these days. That's the thing. Warm climate's not popular. <laughs> and it just blows my mind because just because it's a warm climate doesn't mean the wine's going to be massive. And, and for me, wines that are, even if they are massive, that retain that elegance within that, that is what is, I think, really expi- exciting to me. I mean, we talk about Trevon. We've got, I mean, not to give away what we're going to taste, taste, uh, taste soon, mm-hmm. but... Um, you know, producers like Henri Bono. I mean, Henri Bono is one of, I think, the top, you know, top 20 domains on the planet. It doesn't matter where they're from. I mean, I absolutely have great reverence for, um, uh, for the wines that he made and now that his son's making in Chateauneuf de Pape. And I mean, there are wines in these, obviously, you in wines, you, you guys were in, are in California. You're in the, in the capital of abused vineyards in terms of like overworked, overextracted, overdone hot climate wines that that are you know what we can say they're chasing points or that they're the darlings of these kind of opulent styles of wine. Chateauneuf de Pape is kind of equally guilty of having overworked some of those wines, but at, at their peak, at the best examples, there's so much finesse. I mean, even wines that I've had bottles of like homage from um, from Bocastel, 15%, you know, 95% or 90% Mouvedre, and it's just, it's intense, but there's just so much balance, and when a wine's in balance and that alcohol doesn't spike, and it's just at home with whatever's been created, it doesn't matter if it's really 13, 14, 15, if it's the, the wine is been made at its at its best. We make uh, wine, uh, not, not to push the Birakino thing, but we make wine up in the Shalon AVA, Romance. And that is a, and you drive up there, it's a, it's basically high desert, it's bone dry, it looks like a wild west, sort of a, a scene for a spaghetti western. And you kind of go up there and think, you know, this would be pretty cool for Morved. Mm-hmm. There's there. an extinct volcano. Extinct on there. And it is freaking hot. It is really hot, but it's really cold at night. And the fact that, you know, not to get too geeky, but if this is really on some north face, and if there's that shift, there's some sort of... If you have a high difference, a diurnal shift, and that does that makes all the difference up there. You can make wines in this hot climate from Pinot Noir, which should not really doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. So, Richard, uh, while we're pouring, do you want to tell us a bit about what uh, what you brought for us and um, why um, you brought it? So, I when when I was told the remit was south of France, I racked my brain about what I wanted to bring, and I was uh, not just regarding sort of producer, but also color. I think I decided in the end on a red uh, because you'd said that we had a white and a rosé and one other red, and I thought, oh, I'll do a, I'll do a red. And I, I chose uh, Terre de Chardon, who are a biodynamic organic producer in the Costier de Nîmes. 
and I have a funny relationship with the Costiers name. Uh, very famous in the UK for just being cheap and really good value. Uh, this is not one of those. This is uh, a quality producer. Um, but about eight years ago, they the the Appalachian did a massive project where they sent a bunch of wine bloggers three blind wines to work out what they were on their websites. And so not having any idea of what the Appalachian was, I'd guessed further up the Rhone, but I tasted them blind and I thought it was an interesting experiment. I don't think it went well because I don't think, from what I understood, I think of the 70 people that had been sent the bottles, no one had, only maybe one or two people had got it right. Um, the, the region didn't seem to have an identity yet and I think that's, that's changing now. Um, it's one of those places where quality wine is, is, is growing and this is, uh, this is on the more natural side of things uh, for, for my tastes, um, but I really love the producer. Uh, I was on a buying trip with, with my old company uh, last year and one of my colleagues at the time dragged me over to the table saying these are, the, these are, these are pretty fantastic. So this is uh, 2015 vintage, quite ripe. 80% Grenache, 20% Syrah. Um, this is their Bien Lune. It's their uh, it's their more Van de Soif wine. So it's much more their sort of you know easy drinking light. Obviously, you can tell it's pretty cloudy. There's no finding or filtering on this, um, but it's still there's. I, I really liked it because it there's a there's a juiciness and a definition of fruit that. A lot of wines of this style from this part of the world can can often lack in favor of being that much more authentic and or natural, in inverted quotation marks. <laughs> God, it, it's beautiful. Yeah, it really looks, I mean, it looks like Grenache someplace. It smells, to me, it smells like Syrah. Syrah to me. It's just, it tastes yeah. like it's just a totally... Costiardinim always does that to me. That, 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 so one of the reasons why I got all the, all the blind bottles that they sent me, I thought they were all Syrah, and all the blends were 80 Grenache, 20 Syrah. Um, and then they do another cuvee, actually, the, I think it's called the Madrigal, which is reversed and the Syrah is just massive. So, so I guess their Syrah is, is super high octane because you do, you do get that and they're, they're not co-fermented. They're, you know, the, the, um, during vinification, the Grenache is treated very reductively. The Syrah is treated quite oxidative, well, oxidatively in the relative sense. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think they make beautiful wines. Um, and this is actually a wine from the south of France that I know at least one sommelier loves. Bastion from Frenchy is a huge <laughs> fan of Terre de Chardon, so... So there's one uh, sommelier who likes one yeah. wine from the south of France, <laughs> and the other is... Put it on the board! Nailed it. And he's French. It's a well, I mean, it's, uh, it's beautiful. It's amazing. I mean, it's great because we've tasted... I mean, we tasted your I mean, we really see the varietal character. Um, in the wine, but as you say, that 20% straw, I mean, it just punches through with this matte, like, you know, bulldozer of savoriness. It's just got this kind of, this, yeah, really this meaty character comes through. I mean, it's, but it, which I really like, because it kind of works like this kind of like blonde tobacco, 
um, aspect of the Grenache and then that kind of that really bright high tone fruit. I mean, it's just a really cool wine. I mean, it's, uh, and you know, 13%, it's really quite, again, drinkable. Very quaffable, it's, um, I, I, I really like these wines. I, I bought a mixed case after that trip and I, I think I'm gonna have to restock. I think they're they're the sort of bottle, a bottle having a bottle of this at the ready in the house is. I think it's a, it's a good thing to have. You know, consumers get confused by the vocabulary winemaking a lot, and it's you know there's such odd descriptors that are attributed to wines. You know, woolly Chenin Blanc. Like, what the fuck does that mean? You know, but then you taste <laughs> ten wines. You know, you, mean, you know what you mean. But like the first time is that is ridiculous, but. Uh, there are a lot of wines. I do not like wines that are like have vegetativeness. But there's a term that's almost identical. We say botanical, and I love wines that are botanical. They taste like those tinctures. They taste like somebody has dripped in a little bit of Barolo Chinato in them, mm. and that when and that shows up a lot in south of France, um, and it is very different than that full on black cherry or you know the confiture or the confite quality uh, which is impressive kind of early on and then gets really boring but these sorts of wines they stay interesting much longer they're, they're much more interesting and oh, I just love that flavor and it just has a different dynamic you know we've taken this is a good segue to the next wine that we're going to taste which I think um, we've all been excited to taste today because I can see people's eyes keep looking over there um, sure it's still there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, between from your Grenache, um, this one with, I mean, obviously the Syrah, we've kind of identified like what's quite pronounced and its influence in this wine. But seeing the, that, your expression of Grenache beer, Kino in California, this Grenache predominant wine, and then how it kind of segues to the, what we're going to finish with, it's really, I really like the harmony and the way that the Grenache is expressed because so often it, it's a grape that can also be, as you know, you've kind of just touched on, really worked and, and overly concentrated to make these opulent, body, I, I call them bodybuilder wines, um, that um, you know, it's more of an exercise in like how, how opulent can I make this as opposed to like what's the right balance or level within um, what's going to be the most pleasant for my palate at least. Um, within that, and <clears throat> I think we're kind of we're kind of climbing up the, uh, uh, you know, going to that mountain and of what that's going to be, and and I think it's uh, um, Grenache is and because of the big point scoring wines, whether they're you know Grenache and Priorat or um, some over you know big ripened Grenache in Chateau of the Pap or South France or wherever. I just at a as a grape. I mean, you guys maybe can speak to your opinions on the grape working with it more than. I drink it, you make it, and grow it, right? So I, I, I'm aware of the difference in perspectives. But it's such, I think it's one of those misunderstood grapes in terms of it's too often associated with these big opulent wines and it's like, oh, it's big alcohol, it's low tannin, it's this and that, it's you know, the, you know, the other side of the Mediterranean's Zinfandel or Primitivo in a sense. Um, whereas it's, it's such a, I think at its best, is much more Pinot-like in terms of like its expression, this beautiful, um, there's always this natural, I always think blonde tobacco contrasts with like high tone, like red fruit. And I think that that natural intrinsic flavor that's already there when you kind of don't mask it with this like over concentration or overworking of it, that it's really pretty. And then you combine that with some really cool terroir and, and, and a bit of other kind of variables, whether it's blending or whatever else is happening with it, you get these really elegant, profound, ethereal wines that are kind of 
pushing you and pulling you in so many different directions that they're really, I don't know who doesn't like, who, who couldn't like or appreciate or celebrate those wines. And, and it's, again, what I've said earlier, it's, I just, it's, um, surprises me whenever people aren't quite um, as enthused about it. So, um, so John, you've got something pretty special to uh, conclude our uh, evening for us today. It's uh, an up-and-coming producer from the Chateau of the Pau. A new guy, a uh, new guy, um, first vintage, kind of a nouveau style sort of thing. We at Birkino, uh we make, as I mentioned, Pinot Noir, and we have a very strict prohibition of mentioning, you know, what we call the B word, the place in France where they make Pinot Noir. People in California love to talk about how their, you know, Pinot Noirs are Burgundian. Makes me nuts. And we, we never do it. We never would do it. We're not trying to make Burgundy. Doesn't taste like Burgundy. That being said, I, we freely admit when Grenache, there's this thing that we kind of look towards. And it's not that we make a wine that is at this level or should be compared to it, but it, it is, uh, you know, we can aspire to this sort of model, and the vineyard is set up, from which we make Grenache, to do something in that style. Mm -hmm. And I love this wine. You know, going, um, I was just like imagining, a, a, like a few minutes ago, in California, you know, it's after uh, January 1st when pot is legal now, so we got the, the email from somebody and said, you know, decide on some wine that you guys want to have poured. I, I was imagining a couple, you know, guys back in the room like, hey, <laughs> you know, like, we'll never do it, but... So we didn't have Reyes, but we got this wine made by the uh, same family, Reno family. Uh, one of the uh, oddities in Chateauneuf, they make basically 100% Grenache wines here and then up in their the property in, in Vacaras. And I, uh, I'm not going to pretend like I can describe the last 34 vintages of Reyes because... You know, I'm lucky enough, I was also a wine buyer and I got to go to the Martins tasting. She imports the wines into the U.S. and I get to taste them and occasionally drink them there on somebody else's dime. But I taste the wines from up at the Domaine de Tour. They're either the Vacaros, the Cote de Rhone, or they're VDP. They're little wines. All through their range, they are perfumed. They're never, I never feel like they're heavy or they want, they're intended to be heavy. They're fruity, they have this liqueur quality in Grenache I love, but they always have, again, that botanical quality I love. They can be funky sometimes, but when they're pure, they're just the perfume and the texture and the just prismatic character of the, of the aromas, the fruit and the spices and the, all those things. Just I love them. One of my favorite kind of groups of wines in the world. I, you know, wish I was the you know real baller and I could buy the real thing. Um, but uh, I would say this is the type of thing we really. We talk about a wine that's an inspiration. Not having tasted it yet, I'm gonna like still like like I, it's still levitating to me because I'm just looking at it. This is kind of our. Are my inspiration. I think I speak for Alex. That's your, he likes yeah. well. That's your hang in there, kitty poster at the end of the winery when you're exactly yeah. You know, rocking. The Farrah Fair Fawcett Majors poster <laughs> up on the wall. You know, like, I could have a girlfriend like that. You know, um, while you're like racking the Grenache, you know, Rocky's <laughs> eye of the tiger, and like staring at a Ray ass poster. Yeah. Except like, we do clean the barrels, so I don't know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> sorry, did I just... 
I mean, it, it's and you know, one of the things that it's kind of a common theme in, in the in the episodes we have when we're tasting great wines. It's kind of um, I'm I'm always obsessed with kind of the enigmatic characters of the wine world, the kind of the quirky eccentrics that make wines that are so amazing, and that they're always a bit quirky. <laughs> Reyes is kind of one of the, is perfectly fit to one of those, and I think you know, Jancis has a great story about like going to Reyes and and trying to get a visit, and for Jancis Robinson to try to get a visit, somewhat difficult. And um, speaking to uh, the importer, former former managing director, who had said he said I organize two visits a year to Chateau Reyes, yours for Jancis Robinson. And his own, <laughs> and that's it. That's the only other. Those are the only appointments he can get. And it's um, they don't have a phone, or they didn't have, like they, they had a phone. They didn't have an email, you know, email, in a fax machine. It was this kind of uh, archaic kind of domain that you, 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 you send letters and hope and pray kind of thing. But you know, and this is the 2009. This is the current release. This is, they hadn't released a wine since 2014. And um, so Pignan obviously is the second wine of Chateau Reyes. Um, you know, my allocation of Chateau Reyes this year was three bottles, and it was gone by the time I got on the bus and before I got off the bus. Um, the, all three bottles had kind of been scooped up before they even arrived at the shop. But um, so, I mean, what's interesting about Pignan, what's interesting about you know, Reyes' wines is that their soil, I mean, Chateau de Pape is mostly famous for the kind of the Galais soil, right? And, you know, <clears throat> Reyes is on this kind of decomposed, um, sandy rock, very iron-rich, Sand and very like red sand soils, but there's you know not a stone in sight kind of thing, and and, and um, which is interesting because I always when I think of wines that are on that kind of sandy soils, I'm always afraid that 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 without that that um, added um, layer of depth on the mid palate that brings from some of the galley soils that sapidity that it, it can very much what I mean, what you, what you said tell me, similar similar to the schist in the, yeah. in, in the Roussillon can really mask and kind of absorb a lot of the heat and other kind of things that that uh, can hap, um, can come from growing in such a hot hot site and absorb that alcohol and this wine has nothing there's no there's no nothing to mask anything it's like what you see is what you get like it's either it's either going to be you know precise or it's not and this wine um, sings i mean it's just beautiful i get so many I get loads of really good Barolo notes from it mm. at the moment as well, just to, at where it is. I, I think that's more of a developmental phase, but there's that petrichor, that sort of rain on hot asphalt tariness, particularly towards the, the end of the mid palate, that you get that almost uh, like, yeah, burnt stone quality, which just, you know, it, it comes out of nowhere because you don't get it on the nose and it's, but it's still incredibly integrated. I, that's an amazing one. Yeah, it just clicks through these different things. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's this flavor. It's like a little meaty. Oh, there's this cherry liqueur. Oh, there's this fennel. Chinato earlier. Chinato, there's botanical esgranics. Yeah, yeah. they just go through all these different things. And it's, again, people think of Chateau Neuf, there's big, lush, heavy wines. It is so not big and heavy, but you could not, like, I don't know, fault it for, you know, so it's not missing any pieces. It's just really... It's just a very so lovely texture. Guys, thanks so much for sharing this uh, special bottle. I mean, this is really a fitting, uh, a fitting way to wrap up the, the theme today. And it was, it was, um, it's very rare that, well, not very rare. Um, sometimes it can be um, a, a challenge for a wine to live up to the hype of itself based on its own kind of, uh, uh, um, its own reputation. But I think this bottle was definitely um, fit to its name. And um, 
thank you so much for sharing your wines, your story, um, and your own appreciation for the wines of this region and um, how it's kind of inspired what you guys are up to in California. And um, thanks to everyone here at Luca Restaurant for hosting us and um, look forward to sharing some more bottles with you guys again soon. Here, here. Cheers. 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 I'll drink Pignol anytime. Yeah, Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please take a moment to share a review online or share the episode with your friends. 